0: The King James Bible undoubtedly is ripe for flourishing in Appalachia. When you see people who have moved from Europe and they wanted to go to a rebellious land and they find themselves in Appalachia and they have in their hand what could amount to nothing short of a rebellious book, the two were perfectly married. And so we find a match made in Appalachia.
1: From Tri State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, this is the Level Paths Podcast. My name is Chris Weigel, and we're glad you've taken some time to join us. Have you ever picked up your Bible and thought, how did this text end up in my hands? Why am I reading the version that I'm reading? On this episode of the Level Paths podcast, Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamlin introduce us to Dr. Peter Gurry and Dr. Elijah Hickson. This is one of those discussions that will require the use of your thinking cap. The canonized text of the Bible is the inspired Word of God, made available through the quills and printing presses of man. How that works calls for an academic discussion, to say the least. But as always, Rex and Matt will unpack that for us, and by the end of the podcast, we'll have a better perspective on how we obtained our preferred copy of the Bible. Here's Rex.
2: Welcome to the Level Paths podcast, where we were looking for the glory of God in clear view. Uh, We're coming to you from Appalachia, and we are at Tri-State Bible College located in South Point, Ohio, right where Kentucky, West Virginia come together along the Ohio. We have hills and valleys here. We think of that passage in Mark chapter 1, Isaiah 40, where the Lord wants to level hills and raise up valleys and smooth out rough places so that all flesh can see the glory of God. Well, I'm so excited about today. Two of my good friends are with us today. We have Dr. Peter Gurry, the assistant professor of New Testament at Phoenix Seminary. He's also the co-director of Text and Canon Institute. Dr. Gurry and I were at DTS together, and where he earned his THM, he went on to earn his PhD from the University of Cambridge. And prior to all that, he was a Moody Bible Institute grad. His research interests range from the history and formation of the Bible, Greek grammar, in the history of New Testament scholarship. He's presented papers, SBL and ETS, and the British New Testament Conference. He and his wife have six kiddos, and they're members at Witten Avenue Bible Church. You like cheap fast food, good typography, like Comic Sans, (laughs) and uh, the Jack London series of books, right? (laughs) Everything with the Comic Sans, yes. And uh, some of the publications, we'll use this to kind of transition to Dr. Hickson. You guys co-edited Myths and Mistakes in New Testament Textual Criticism by IVP Academic in 2019. And I've read that and loved it. It corrected some things for me, even though I feel like I didn't graduate seminary and I'm a PhD student right now, but it still corrected some things, you know, some of the ways I use statistics and so forth. So thank you so much for that book. Those who are interested in textual criticism might also want to dive into the coherence-based genealogical method. If you uh, want to get into the deep waters, he and Tommy Vosserman uh, wrote a new approach to textual criticism, and you can dig into that. And our other guest is Dr. Elijah Hickson. Dr. Hickson is a research fellow at the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. He also is the assistant pastor at Fireside Fellowship Church in Kingston, Tennessee, uh, Elijah completed his studies at the University of Edinburgh. He got his Ph.D. from there. He also served a little while at Tindo House in Cambridge. You have some research interests here, Dr. Hickson, New Testament textual criticism, papyrology, early Christian theology, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon
3: as well. I do. I have an icon of Spurgeon hanging up behind me. He would be livid if he knew about it.
2: I do have Spurgeon's uh, work on the Psalms on the shelf over here, but I don't have any of the other any of the other things. Uh, we're so thankful, Elijah Peter, thank you so much for joining us. We are just so excited uh, to talk uh, about our topic today, which is the Bible in Appalachia. We want to start from revelation to retail. Let's say i'm I'm at the local Walmart or here in Appalachia sometimes we say Walmarts. and uh, I go to Walmarts and I, I'm in the book section. And there's a Bible. There's a couple different Bibles, maybe. And I start to ask a critical question of how did that Bible get on the shelf? Like, what was the journey of the Bible all the way back to its origin to that retail shelf? Can you guys take us through
3: that? Well, God wrote it first and he wrote it through people. So such that it's god's book but he used the personalities and writing styles of his people the way that he did it is a hundred percent his book even though it has the personalities of you know matthew and mark and luke and john and paul and the prophets in the old testament we can study it that way by looking at their personalities and their particular styles but not to the degree that it eliminates God out of the picture. It's still all God's book. It comes down to us through the ages through copies because there weren't big uh, publishers and Xerox machines and everything else back then. So if you had a new copy of a book, you copied it out by hand or you hired somebody to do it for you. So that's how it comes down to us. I'm more familiar with the New Testament than the Old Testament. Uh, they are different systems, basically. Uh-huh. We, our New Testament and our Old Testament, how we got them are not exactly the same. So, you'd have to get an Old Testament person to tell you about that. But our, our New Testament came down from uh, mostly Christian copyists who copied the Bible.
2: Dr. Gurry, would you add anything to that? Sure. Well, just if we want to get all the way to Walmart, we got
4: to go through... maybe two other parts of the process. One is what we call canonizing the Bible, so recognizing which books belong and which ones do not. We have four Gospels, not five, not three. The other big part of the process is translating the Bible. So, I'm sure most do not read the Bible in Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic, in which case they're reading the Bible in a translation. So, from very early on, the Bible was translated into other languages. That continues all the way into the Middle Ages, and then picks up steam again in the Reformation, and has continued ever since. So, if you pick up a Bible from Walmart today, you are getting a book that has gotten to you through the labor and sacrifice and scholarship of lots
2: and lots of other people. That's helpful to think about the giving of the Scripture from God to us through the Old Testament prophets and writers and authors, in the New Testament, the apostles and the prophets as well. And then the copying process, the canonization process, the translation process. And even in the translation process, we oftentimes, I do, maybe, maybe you don't, but I often think of it only in an English speaking context, although the Bible has been translated into many, many languages from the original languages to those other languages so that many, many people can read the scriptures and read God's message to us let's go back to the colonial era of America and uh, maybe Revolution War era. As churches are forming, as people are coming over, congregations are being established, what are the English Bible options, maybe the major ones, that people could use? And tell us a little bit about each one of those.
4: By the time of the Revolutionary War and the Declaration of Independence in 1776, you're basically looking at the King James Version which by that point has, is dominating American life. But if you want to go back before that and say, look at when the pilgrims come over on the Mayflower, then you're talking about the Geneva Bible, which before the King James, the Geneva Bible was the most popular English translation among Protestants. It was translated in 1560 by a group of Protestants who had fled England because of persecution there. They landed in Geneva, Switzerland, and were under the care of John Calvin, and they translated retranslated the Bible from the original languages. It was prohibited in England, but they still smuggled it in, and it was hugely popular among the people. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why King James I wanted the King James, is because he did not like the Geneva Bible for various reasons we can get into. He is largely responsible for the King James Version. He's also largely responsible for it becoming very popular because one of the things you could do when you're the king in 1611 is you get to decide what books get printed and which ones don't. You can't just go print a book in England in, in the 17th century. You have to get permission to do it. And he was the one who ultimately has the, the say and who, who publishes what. So he gives his stamp of approval to the King James Version and basically says no more Geneva Bible. You know, I always tell people when we talk about the popularity of the King James Version, it was successful partly because it was a good translation. Yes. But it was also popular because it had some help from the king himself. That Then fast forward to America. And again, before the Revolutionary War, you've got the Geneva Bible coming over with pilgrims. And then eventually the King James Version is really becomes the Bible of America.
2: So let's dive in a little bit to the King James Version. You know, Marvel movies love to give like a little origin story to their characters. Let's do a little bit of origin story for the King James Version of the Bible.
4: It starts when King James becomes King of England. He had been the king of Scotland. He becomes the king of England. And as he's moving south from, from Scotland to England, he, he's aware that he's got a problem on his hands. And that is the fact that the high church, Church of England leadership does not like the Puritans. Okay, The Puritans are this group that wants to change the Church of England and do away with a lot of things that to them smacked of Roman Catholicism. And so he's got these two factions and he wants to try to bring them together. So his idea was to bring them together and try to get them to hash out their theological differences and, and that would sort of pave the way then for his political plans. That doesn't happen. He does get them together at a place called Hampton Court, but they don't really agree on anything at that meeting. The one thing they do agree on that comes out of that meeting is they do agree on a new translation of the Bible. And that King James was very happy to get behind because, as I mentioned, the dominant English version of the time was the Geneva Bible, and he really didn't like it in large part because of its notes. It had all sorts of notes in the margin, sort of like our study Bibles today. And at various points, the, the Geneva Bible was anti-Catholic and anti-divine right of kings, let's say. OK, and, and at various points said things like, for example, when Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, there's notes in, in the book of Daniel saying like, hey, it's OK to disobey a law from a ruler that goes against God's law. Well, as far as King James was concerned, God's law and his law were the same. <laughs> so, so that's a problem. He didn't like those kinds of notes in the Bible. So that's why he was happy. So one of the one of the principles, one of the founding principles for the translation committee that worked on the King James was that there were to be no notes in it except where necessary to explain like alternate ways of translating the Greek or Hebrew. In a few cases, there are notes uh, mentioning differences in the Greek or Hebrew manuscripts, that kind of thing. But other than that, no notes of kind of an interpretive nature. And that's because of the Geneva Bible. So the short answer is we get the King James from out of that meeting at Hampton Court. And it's the process of six different groups of scholars from Oxford and Cambridge Universities that work together on different parts of the Bible. And perhaps the most important thing to say about the King James is often not known is that it's not a new translation. The scholars were not told to sit down with their Greek and Hebrew Bibles and translate from scratch. Rather, they were told explicitly to base it, first of all, on the 1602 edition of the Bishop's Bible, and then to use a whole bunch of other ones as well that had come before, like the Great Bible and the Geneva Bible even, and Tyndale's, of course. So, they were explicitly told to use these other editions of the Bible and In the preface to the readers, they're very clear in the King James Version itself that they did not intend to suggest with the new translation that all previous translations were bad. In fact, they praise other translations and say they are good and that their hope was just to make one that was even better or perhaps out of many good ones, a sort of supremely good one, you know, an extra good one. And interestingly enough, fun fun little fact, when it came to actually quoting the Bible in that preface to the readers, The version that they quoted from was not the King James itself, as you would expect. It's actually the Geneva Bible, which tells you something about just how popular the Geneva Bible
3: was at the time. It's almost impossible to talk about this without somebody losing their mind and accusing you of slander for whatever reason, like too oversimplified, not simplified enough. There's this obscure detail that you didn't talk about, and therefore you're lying. I always want to be very careful because of that. We can talk about the text from which the King James version was based, or rather, you know, it's a revision, so is it based or is it not? That's a murky issue, because there wasn't an actual Greek text that lines up in every place to the King James. A scholar called Scrivener in the late 1800s did try to come up with one, and that is what's printed and what's typically used by people who are in favor of the greek text underlying the king james that it's called the textus receptus which is kind of a marketing ploy it's the text received by all but every place you know there were these little little tiny differences in editions of the textus receptus so was it the text received by all if you're too uh, strict on what the text is um, that's a question to ask in short, in the early 1500s, a scholar called Erasmus compiled an edition of the Greek text, which was basically because he had translated the New Testament into Latin as a new translation. And he gave a Greek text to sort of justify what he was doing. And that was the first published edition. There was a one that was printed slightly before but it wasn't officially published until later that starts this long line of editions that get printed in the 1600s the famous ones that you hear about are erasmus uh, Stephanus, theodore beza and in the 1600s the elzeviers but there are a lot of others in the midst of all that as well and the king james sort of comes out of that and so you have a text that's very similar to how they were editing texts back then
2: You know, one of the things I want to say here, Matt, is it sounds like during that period, there was a surge of interest in the scriptures. If we can just maybe like blanket statement, people are interested in the Bible. As we kind of segue to Appalachia, one of my great concerns for our region is that the Bible sometimes gets in way of the Bible. You understand what I'm saying about that, Matt? Like The Bible becomes the issue that prevents us from knowing the Bible.
0: I was with a few members of my church, and we were at a local restaurant, and a guy from a church came up to us and talking, and he knew one of the men at the table, and he started to talk to us about King James-onlyism at a level that I had never encountered before, even to the point of saying that if a person comes to faith in Christ under a preacher who was using a, a Bible other than the King James Bible, then he's not saved. I had never encountered that. I've encountered people who were pretty mad about King James onlyism, but never to that extent. The development of the King James Bible undoubtedly changed the world. There's no question that the man behind the plow had the ability to do something that he couldn't do in the past, and that was read the Bible. And the King James Bible undoubtedly is ripe for flourishing in Appalachia. When you see people who have moved from Europe And they've immigrated to Europe and they wanted to go to a rebellious land and they find themselves in Appalachia and they have in their hand what could amount to nothing short of a rebellious book. The two were perfectly married. And so I think that we could see that develop. But you're exactly right, Rex. There's a sacred view of the King James Bible that it is the one and only Bible so you see this rebellious people and this rebellious book and they come together in ultimately a rejection possibly a rejection of the gospel because the death burial resurrection of Jesus Christ is the message of revelation to man specific revelation to man but that message does not come to us only in a Bible translation and so we find We find a match made in Appalachia. Maybe that's what we could call this podcast, a match made in Appalachia. Guys, why is it that there was such flourishing? I know that we have the King of England who's now endorsing a Bible. It's the authorized version. I still hear that argument often. Well, I think immediately it's important to know historically it's not popular right
4: away. It had critics almost immediately. And in fact, there was an attempt to revise it fairly soon after that eventually fell through. But it even, I think, at one point got to Parliament for their approval, and it never went anywhere from there. But as I mentioned, it has the king's backing behind it because he doesn't like the Geneva Bible. So, you know, when the king says this is the only Bible that can be sold, that tends to have a positive effect on its success rate. You know, I think they really did do a good job. I think when you compare it to its predecessors, it really succeeded in taking the best of each of them. It takes the best of Tyndale, and Tyndale was a marvelous translator. He just had an ear for the English language, but then it had sort of, you know, as one author said, it has the language of Tyndale, but the scholarship of the Geneva Bible, and the Geneva Bible really did have a good, really good scholarship behind it, and there were good scholars that worked on the King James as well, which is one reason why they recognized that in the Geneva Bible. Part of its success is due to the king. Part of its success is due to the fact that it does sort of draw from the best of its predecessors. I think from there on, it really is a, a wonder that it succeeds by itself for so long, that it is 250 years before we get a full, widely used revision of the King James in the, uh, in the uh, revised version of 1881.
3: You mentioned that in the United States, it was the Bible. It's God's word of course it's going to be popular especially if there's no other widely available translation out there you know god's word is living and active it's powerful it goes forth and uh, does what god wants it to accomplish and if there's only one translation available well that's what god is using jesus says my sheep hear my voice and that's the accent that he had
4: The more options you have, the more forced you are, whether you want to or not, to care about the differences. So, you know, like, people always want to ask me, what's the best translation? And, you know, in some ways, I could give you three or four that say they're all good. When I lived in England, we went to a Grocery store. there's was like a hole in the wall. I mean, it was like this. It was like the size of my office right now. <laughs> you could not really fit two people down the aisles at the same time. When you go there and you have two choices of cereal, you don't care that much. But then I come back to the U.S. and I go to Costco or wherever, and you know, and I've got three hundred choices. And then now all of a sudden, I have to go. Well, do I want the one with marshmallows in it, or do I want the one without marshmallows? You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden, I have like so much more choice. So the differences between them, I actually can elevate the significance of the differences between them more than they ought to be precisely because I have more choice. (laughs) So I actually think sometimes today we tend to get more worked up about translation precisely because we have more options. Whereas for those 250 years, people didn't even have an option. So they didn't really worry about whether the King James was a good translation or not because they had nothing to compare it to. The only people who were worried about it were the people who could read Greek and Hebrew. And they were usually just talking to each other. And they only had to point out the problems with it when they had to, which again was often when they were talking to each other. So, but once you have two, three, and then four in different English translations, now the plowboy, right? Now the plowboy has to care because he has a choice to make and he wants to make sure he picks the best one. When you don't have a choice or when the only people who know that there's a problem with it are the people who are the scholars who know the original languages, you're just not faced with that kind of widespread almost an existential question of which one do I choose. The cloudboy just doesn't have to worry about it.
1: Coming up on the Level Paths podcast, the Bible in Appalachia. How important is your version of the Bible? The Tri-State Bible College fall 2022 semester begins on Monday, August 29th. TSBC offers a variety of modalities, including residential classes, resident modular classes with Zoom integration, and distance education online. Generous donors to Tri-State Bible College have made three new scholarships available, the Bivocational Scholarship, the Philemon Scholarship for loan relief, and the Koinonia Scholarship for matching funds. Apply today at tsbc.edu.
2: I was a new Christian at a really small Baptist church down a holler here in uh, Southern Ohio because I had a growing interest in uh, the study of the Bible. My pastor suggested that I go to tri state bible college and My pastor was not a person who is King James only himself, but he was ministering in a congregation that was. And that's very often the case here in our region. The pastor will use multiple translations in his study, but when he comes to the pulpit, he has to use the King James version. And so I'll never forget my Bible intro class. We watched some videos from the John Ankerberg show, and we saw a very, very young Dr. Dan Wallace in the back with uh, three KJV only guys. And then we had three editors from some of the more modern translations, the NASB, the new King James and the NIV. I remember watching those videos. It was me becoming aware that there are options. That's I it. don't know that I was yeah. even aware that there were options or arguments or anything. All you knew was there was the Bible and the only Bible you knew about
4: was the King James. So you didn't have to worry about it. That's it. And I, you know, King James only will sometimes say that how much better that was. And there's this, like, I want to grant them that there are a lot of benefits when the entire English speaking world is reading from the exact same translation. It does create a shared vocabulary, at the very least, it creates a shared vocabulary for people to use with each other. And there's a real loss when we lose that. It's just that I always remind people that it's actually the King James that is the anomaly in the history of English Bible translation. Those 250 years where it's the only option, that's the novelty. Because prior to that, for Hundred years, there were options. You know, you have Tyndale's and then you have Coverdale, you have Matthew, you have the Great Bible, the Taverner, the Geneva, and the Bishop's Bible, and then eventually the Dewey Rhymes. Like you have options. Now, not everybody has options because of finances and availability, but at least conceptually, you have options before the King James. And then again, starting in 1881 with the revised version, you started to have options again. It's a remarkable thing when you think about you know, living in a time period where the Bible is a single translation, and that's all people know.
2: So, let's contextualize this a little bit to Appalachia. How do you men speak to Christian leaders or pastors that you've encountered where they have to manage and lead in the context of people fighting about Bible translations?
3: I remember one time when I was about 19 or 20, I was pulpit supply preaching the next town over, and i asked the pastor you know what translation do you use because that's i always just bring whatever the pastor uses he told me well if it ain't the king james don't bother coming so i brought the king james and i've preached from the king james and i've done that plenty of times since in my own church it's not an issue usually because what i tend to see is that people don't naturally doubt the bible if they're christians unless a King James person tells them that they need to. In my own church, it's not an issue. The only time it's been an issue was a few weeks ago. I had a church member asking about it because she had somebody telling her that she shouldn't be reading her NIV. And she was like, I understand this. I don't understand the King James, but I understand the NIV. And I wanted to make sure that I could really read this. And she was relieved. And I told her, yes, you, you can read that. That's God's word. Everybody else, when issues come up, the answer is sort of, well, of course, there's a a little difference. It's a different translation. Why wouldn't there be a little difference? Or, well, yeah, of course, there were manuscripts. Why wouldn't that be the case? I don't usually see that as a conflict within a church. I know that happens. I don't see it often. And maybe that's just where I'm at, and I'm not in a place where that happens often.
2: I think you're right. I think we're maybe at a point where people have kind of picked their side, so to speak, and they fellowship along those lines. You know, that's their community conviction and so forth. So, would you say that it's beneficial for a congregation to choose a translation that they're going to use for their their congregation, their teaching, their Bible studies, or should everyone just kind of have freedom to use and throughout the ministries of the church. A lot of young people have the Bible app. So should there be this congregationally designated
3: translation? What are the pros and cons of the impact? Can I tell you a story from when I was in college? My roommate at the time, he uh, was kind of making fun of me because in college I used the New King James. That was the Bible version that my church used. And he was, Oh, the you know, New King James, but you're still on this King James. So we went to our, our Wednesday night bible study at college and he had his whatever it was back then but he had a bible on it it was his turn to read and the only version that was available was the one he had and it was the 1901 asb which if you've ever read it has more these and thous than the king james at some at points um it was funny to me because me with my old new king james and he was reading something that sounded even more archaic a pastor is
4: definitely going to need to pick a Bible he's going to preach from consistently, and then he probably needs to pick a translation that he's going to do whatever public readings the church does. It wouldn't be healthy to sort of pick and choose, like, well, this week we're going to use the New King James, next week we'll use the ESV because I like it better, and this, you know, that's just not helpful. I always recommend to for lay people that they have, if they're doing studying, they should try to compare a couple translations if they can but they should have kind of what I call like a home base, a reference point translation. That's their main one that they memorize from, they read regularly, that sort of becomes the rhythm of their Bible reading. That's my recommendation, of course, that comes with pastoral wisdom. Like in the context there in Appalachia, if you're a pastor and it's going to cause a big stir if you switch from the King James, that's probably not a battle you need to pick, especially not in your, your, your first year. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? sort of like that and changing the music are two things you should never, ever do in your first probably five years as a new pastor, right? You just have to, you need to build some credibility with your people first before you do anything like that. But if they can, you know, I think the new King James version is is good. It's much more understandable to most people than the King James. So if you've got people who love the King James, that may be an easier move than something like to the ESV or NASB for folks. It takes pastoral wisdom, like a lot of things, but I usually tend to recommend that people pick the most literal translation that's still understandable to them. So if some people, you know, brand new believer may find the ESV or NASB too hard to understand, then then pick up something that's not as literal and a bit easier to understand.
0: I would caution with the pastoral wisdom. When you're dealing with King James Onlyism. our Christian school has a lot of folks from various denominations, including some that would (laughs) tend to be more KJV only. And the question, when it came time for Bible memorization among our student body, what Bible translation should they memorize? And it had always been King James before. And some of the parents, especially of the younger students, came to the board and they said, you know, our children can't understand the King James. I thought of this earlier that the greatest attribute of the King James Bible early on was that the man behind the plow had the ability to read it. But that also became one of its biggest obstacles later on that the language of the King James Bible moved far past the average person reading it. Mm -hmm. And so in my pastoral wisdom, I suggested that we use the new King James Bible. We immediately had people leave our school. I thought that was an easy middle ground. When you're dealing with King James only, folks, it is King James. Only. And of course, it's the 1611 King James only in their view. And we know very good and well that that's not the case, but they don't know that. And so the depths of this issue, it's incredible. I noticed, guys, that as you were laying out the process of how we got our Bible from the autographs to the Walmart, that one of the steps that you did not touch on that would be emphasized by our King James only folks is the preservation of the text. Why has there been this added step? Because often we hear when we think of preservation of the text, we're not saying that God has preserved his text by the multitude of copies and manuscripts, but God has preserved his text through the Texas Receptus. Why is that a problem?
3: Larry Hurtado told me once, said, I believe that Christianity is a historical faith. And what I mean by that is, there are things that really happened in history and if that's the case that they really happen in history then we should be able to investigate them historically which i thought was a simple premise right and you even see that in acts There's a sermon. I got in really big trouble for saying this once, but I said it anyway. I didn't come up with it either. I heard it from somebody. There's a sermon where uh, I think it's Peter preaching, and it's talking about one of the Psalms being a messianic prophecy. The proof that it was not talking about David was, here's David's bones. David's buried here. We know it's not talking about David because here's David. And the person that I heard that from said, See, there's archaeology informing us on in how to interpret a biblical text in the Bible. In the Bible, the Bible's doing it. There are places in the Texas Receptus where you have to do some very complicated mental gymnastics to make it work by the definition of preservation that you're applying everywhere else. And one of those is the comma Yohanniam in 1 John. This, the three witnesses, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one. Well, how did those come into the Greek text? As it turns out, historically, as much as you can know things historically, we know how that happened. Erasmus left them out of his first two editions. He said, they're not in the Greek manuscripts if i had found them in a greek manuscript i would have put them in people kind of get that what he said a little mixed up at times he found a greek manuscript and it ended up in his third edition and then i think he revised the wording a little bit in his fourth and fifth that's how it came into the text well how did that happen well we we know the manuscript that he found and it turns out that we know what manuscript it was copied from. And when it was copied, it had a tendency of conforming its Greek text to the Latin. The comma Eohaneum has always been a Latin issue. It's been in the Latin copies, but not in the Greek. Now it shows up in this particular Greek copy, and it's not the only place where this Greek copy has conform stuff to the latin and so to me there's this chain of events that happens you can pinpoint how it happened and it did not happen through preservation it happened through change people can say oh well it was preserved through the latin well it can't be because it latin is not greek The Greek text cannot be preserved in anything that's not Greek. You lose something in translation, if if nothing else, the shapes of the letters. That's just one example that I would point to to say, you have to believe for that to be preserved, you have to believe that not only has God not allowed any uncorrupt manuscripts to exist, he has allowed 500 or so corrupt manuscripts to exist at that point is that something consistent with what we would expect God to do? I mean, is this sort of a, you better watch it. You know, I'm just checking. You better believe this. I know it doesn't look like it, but you better, you know, like that doesn't seem to me like the kind of thing that God would do. I don't think God plays gotcha games.
4: When we think about God's providence and its role in preserving the Bible for us, we shouldn't let that process or, or limit God's providence to the year 1611 in England. God is sovereign over all of creation. That means every country, every language, <laughs> every Bible translation project from the Septuagint all the way up to the present day, and it means He's sovereign over the discoveries of manuscripts as well, you know. He's sovereign over the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in, you know, the 20th century. He's sovereign over the Cairo Geniza fragments of the Hebrew Old Testament as well. He's sovereign over the discovery of Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, and Even though King James only may not like those two manuscripts, God is still sovereign over those as well. And so, one of my responses would be to say, I do actually believe in preservation. I think God's providence has ensured that we have a reliable text, but I believe this providence is not limited and doesn't stop at the year 1611 in in England. I think His providence extends over all of creation. It extends over every language. It extends over every manuscript discovered. It extends over even the work of scholars still today, Right. So, it's not as if somehow God said, well, these scholars from Cambridge and Oxford in 1611, my providence is fully done with them, (laughs) and nobody else afterwards gets overseen by my good hand.
2: Okay, that's good news for Appalachia. That's good news that God is still in the business of preserving His Word for us. I'm thinking of John 539, and this, this is the thing about this conversation that really kind of tugs at my heart is when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of his day, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but it's they that testify about me. And so many times we can get too distracted and miss what the Bible is all about. And that is about Jesus Christ and what he's done, his person, his work, how he has changed the discourse about God forever. There's
0: so much to talk about with this, and this is such a in many ways, a foreign conversation to the average person who's sitting in the pew and to be able to walk away recognizing that we have actually more reason to trust the Bible that we hold in our hands, not because it's been preserved in 1611, but because God has a process that he has put together from the autographs to the Walmarts uh, that has enabled his people to have his special revelation. And it's not limited to just one translation, but rather has given us really a library of tools for which we can hear his voice and know uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, guys, thank you for this time together. Thank you for helping us understand this in a better way.
1: it's a good reminder to hear that God's provision for His Word didn't come to an end back in 1611. Over the past 400 years, other translations of the text are available, but His Word does not return void, and it is still changing lives around the world, and certainly in Appalachia. Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute exist as a resource, and no matter what need you may have, Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamblin want you to reach out to them today. Rex Howe is the president of Tri State Bible College, and you can contact him by email at rex.howe at tsbc.edu. That's rex.howe at tsbc.edu. And you can reach out to Dr. Matt Shamblin at the Appalachian Ministry Institute by email as well. Matt.shamblin at tsbc.edu. <laughs> On the next episode of the Level Paths Podcast.
0: We want you, after our gathering on Sundays, to spend time together and let the Word move outside of these four walls into homes or into restaurants. Talk about it, discuss it, encourage one another with it. By God's grace, He cultivated that atmosphere here early on.
1: The Level Paths Podcast is an outreach of Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute.